I see that video and I can't help thinking about, it says sometimes we run away from things, from things, and sometimes we run toward things. And I can't help but thinking about one of my favorite TV shows, most of you probably know if you've been here for a while, is Seinfeld, uh, 90s sitcom. And there's an episode called The Fire where George Costanza is <laughs> at a birthday party for his girlfriend's son. And there's a small fire that develops in the kitchen and he runs out of the kitchen, pushing aside his girlfriend and her son and her elderly mother and the clown that was entertaining everybody at the party to get out. And isn't it true that some of us run towards a challenge and some of us run away from a challenge? We're continuing in this series called On the Run. We are talking about the life of David. And we've said that for much of David's life, he was running. He was on the run and he was either running away from something or towards something. And today, uh, one of my favorite stories, one of my favorite uh, uh, things from scripture is we're gonna talk about a story where when everyone else was running away, David ran right toward a challenge. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Samuel 17 is where we're gonna be, 1 Samuel 17. If you don't have your own Bible with you, it's page uh, 197 in the blue Bibles on the floor. Last week, uh, Jerry talked about a man named Saul. Saul was the first ever king of Israel. See, many years before that happened, God had selected a man named Abraham uh, to be uh, the father of a great nation, Abraham walked with God and God said he would reward him by making him the father of a great nation. And that nation eventually became the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And God's plan for Israel was that they would be different from all the other nations on earth, that they would be set apart. The word that the Bible sometimes uses to describe this set apartness is the word holy, that they would be different from everything else. They would would act different, they would eat different, they would worship different. And part of the way that they would be different would be in the way that they were governed. See, the nation of Israel was governed by people called judges. Judges were selected by the priest. The priest at this time was a man named Samuel. So God anointed Samuel as priest. Samuel would anoint judges to lead the nation of Israel for a time. But all the other nations around Israel had kings. They had men who were appointed by the people or self-appointed in many cases to lead these other nations. And Israel eventually got tired at some point God's plan for Israel, by the way, was that God himself would be their king. But the Israelites thought that they knew better than God. Let me ask you, how often do we think we know better than God? How often do we think our plan would be better than his plan? How how often are we unwilling to accept his plan thinking, you know what, I think I'm a little bit smarter than God. We would never say that, but in our actions, we sometimes think that. And that's what happened in Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we read that the people went to Samuel and said, give us a king so we can be like all the other nations. And this angered Samuel because Samuel, as the priest, he was the guy that was selecting the judges. He was the guy that felt responsible. But God said, don't worry, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting God. And so Samuel did what the people asked. And in 1 Samuel 9, we met Saul. Uh, We talked about that last week. We were told that Saul was an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, that he was a head taller than all the others. And Saul is made king. But Saul eventually turned away from God. The very God that enabled him to rule over his people, Saul disobeyed a direct command from God and turned away from him. And since he rejected God, God rejected Saul as king. In fact, we read at the end of 1 Samuel 15 that God regretted that he had made Saul king. And as Jerry showed us last week, uh, you know, understand this, Saul is still, he's still the king, right? He's still in the position of king, but he's no longer God's chosen one. 
And Jerry showed us last week that the Lord spoke to Samuel and said, go to a man from Bethlehem, his name is Jesse, and find one of his sons, the one that I will show you, and he will be the next king. And so Jesse paraded out his seven sons that he had, and uh, everyone went by. God went, nope, not that one, nope, not that one, nope, not that one, nope. <laughs> Remember that last week? Jerry talked about what it meant to be the forgotten one that... that uh, Samuel said to Jesse, is this all of your sons? Aren't there any more? And Jesse said, well, there is one more, but he's out in the pasture with the sheep. And Samuel says, we're not leaving until I get to see him. And they bring in David, this teen, or maybe even preteen, probably no older than 15. And the Lord says, anoint him. He's the one. He's gonna be the next king. And we read in 1 Samuel 16, 13, that from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And God saw it fit to bring David into Saul's service in the palace, that he became an armor bearer for Saul and he became a, a, a musician in Saul's court. And all of this set the stage for one of the best known stories in all of scripture. It's the story we're gonna look at today. It's the story of David and Goliath. And unfortunately in our culture, this story has kind of been uh, relegated to the realm of children's books. You know, it's one that we uh, they teach almost as a fairy tale. We teach it in gin kids, but not so much in the auditorium here because it's so far-fetched and it's so unbelievable. And so it's relegated to children's books and cartoons, and that's really too bad. Because if we were to put the story of David and Goliath on the big screen as a movie or a TV show, it would look much more like Gladiator or Braveheart than VeggieTales, as much as I love VeggieTales. Right? But even then, despite Hollywood's best effort to depict uh, warfare, there's no way they could fully capture the reality of ancient warfare, the brutality of it, the, the horrific aftermath of it, and the up-close and personal nature of it. Modern warfare is brutal, no doubt. It's tragic, but it's far less personal. In modern warfare, soldiers strike from a distance, from a plane or a tank or even behind a computer screen. But in ancient times, they fought face-to-face -face at arm's length. You, you saw the battle not through a scope or a screen, but over the edge of your own shield and maybe through your helmet. You looked the opponent in the eye. You smelled their breath. You saw the sweat on their face. And when the command was given, you thrust your sword or spear forward, hoping that you would impale your opponent before they got you. And then it's very likely that only after the battle that you would really know what your wounds were and whether the blood on your body was your own or someone else's. And if it was yours, even if you were able to stop the bleeding, there was still a good chance you would not survive as infection set in. And if your brothers lost courage in the battle and turned to run, leaving you on the battlefield, you would almost certainly die. It was brutal. It was bloody. It was horrific. And that's just hard to put in a veggie tail, right? But that's the scene that's about to unfold in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And here's where we read. Uh, this. First Samuel 17, 1 says this, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damum between Soko and Ezekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the Valley of Elah. Doesn't that just sound so epic? The Valley of Elah, right? And so you can just picture this. It's probably not nearly as epic as we think, but there's a hill on one side, a hill on the other side. The Valley of Elah is in the middle. It says the Philistines occupied one hill, and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So you can picture the scene, two armies lined up on either side. They're lined up, they're charged up, they're ready to fight. They're ready to engage in this brutal form of battle. And then verse four says, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. 
His height was six cubits in a span. Now, all of you who have your Bible uh, knowledge are thinking, okay, um, what's a cubit? What's, right? Uh, like the Bill Cosby. I used to know what a cubit was. You got your calculator out. You're trying to figure that out. It's six cubits in a span is nine feet, nine inches tall. Think of the tallest NBA player that you've ever seen and add two feet. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a, ca- a coat, a scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. Let's see, what's a shekel again? <laughs> 125 pounds, 5,000 shekels. On his legs were bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. Now I looked this up this week and a weaver's rod would have been about two and a half inches in diameter and a spear would have been probably about as long as the warrior was tall. So if you think two and a half inches in diameter and nine feet, nine inches long, and the point of his spear uh, weighed 600 shekels or 15 pounds. So here's this champion, Goliath. He's a champion, the text calls him, which means this isn't his first rodeo, right? He's done this before. He's fought before. He's killed before. Uh, He's come prepared to kill and win again wearing over 100 pounds of armor. Some of you don't weigh as much as Goliath's armor. And the, li- and, the, and the iron point on his spear weighed 15 pounds. So think about something nine feet, nine inches long, put a 15-pound dumbbell on the end. And that's the, that's the weapon that Goliath is prepared to fight with. This is not a spear made for throwing. It's probably a, a jabbing instrument. It's a, it's a stabbing, a killing instrument. And Goliath, as tall as he was, likely would have lined up in the second row of men, Um, behind the first row, which was essentially a wall of shields. So the first row, they would have been hiding behind their shield like this. Goliath, as tall as he was, uh, could reach over the front row and stab soldiers one at a time as they came down with relative safety and ease. And in verse eight, we read this. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome and kill him, you will become our subjects, or your translation might say slaves, and you will serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Now, when you read this, you might think it's kind of a cop-out by Goliath, right? We've got two armies, Uh, maybe he looks over at the Israelite army and thinks, well, they're bigger than we are. They've got more people than we are. But this is really a pretty smart move on Goliath's part because he recognizes the brutality of ancient warfare. It's not the most efficient way of fighting. And he says, even if we win, we can lose a lot of men. We can lose a lot of soldiers. So being an experienced warrior, he understood. He he says, I'm going to make an offer. Instead of the potential for mass casualties on both sides, let's go one-on-one. I'll fight for my army. And you send a man to fight for yours, and whoever wins will rule the other. That's the challenge. Now look at the response, verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Dismayed and terrified. Why would they be terrified? These are soldiers. They are trained for war. They're they're mighty warriors. Well, they're terrified because where had Israel put their trust? They had put their trust in a king, remember, in this man problem was they chose this man to be king instead of allowing God to be their king as God wanted to be, right? There's where God's plan may have been better than their own plan. So instead of trusting in God, they put their trust in a man. And so maybe it's a good time to just step back from here, from the text, and remember, why did the people choose Saul to be king in the first place? If we look back in 1 Samuel 9, we heard that Saul was a head taller than everyone else, that there was no one his equal 
in the, among Israel. So what do you think the Israelites, who do you think they would have chosen to go out and fight Goliath? It would have been Saul, right? He's the tallest guy in the camp. Who's gonna guard Shaq? It's gonna be the tallest guy on your team. Who's gonna fight Goliath? Well, it's gonna be the tall one without equal in all of Israel. But where's the king? He's cowering in his tent. And so the people are just gonna follow, right? Verse 11 says that King Saul is dismayed and terrified along with everyone else. And what's worse, this isn't a one-time event. This isn't like Goliath came out and made this challenge and everybody run and hid. This is happening every day. If you read the text, every day for 40 days, Goliath would come out and make this challenge and defy the armies. And twice a day, in fact, every morning, it says, and every evening, he would come out and defy the Israelite armies and insult their God. And day after day, the Israelites waited for the king to come out of his tent and fight the battle. 40 days is a long time. It's long enough to start to wonder if maybe your trust is misplaced, right? Maybe we've counted on something that we shouldn't have counted on. And I think this is where David's story, Saul's story starts to intersect with our story. Because here's what's true for all of us. Where you place your trust is where you get your hope. Where you place your trust is where you get your hope. And here's what I mean by that. If you put your trust in a job or a career to take care of you and to meet your needs, what happens when you lose that job? Your hope is gone, right? If you put your trust in a house or a car or a vacation to make you happy or even another person to make you happy, what happens if they let you down? You lose hope, right? Your hope is gone. When the person or thing that we've placed our trust in fails us, isn't it true that the extent of our hope becomes the extent of our frustration or our disappointment. And I think that's why we have the potential to resent the people closest to us more than anyone else, right? They, they, think about this for a minute. Sometimes, even in ways we don't fully recognize, we put all of our trust in a person, in someone, whether it's a spouse or a parent, or maybe it's a child, or maybe it's a friend, and we hope they'll do certain things and act a certain way, and we put our trust in those people when we do that. And and when they don't act, don't behave, don't respond the way that we had expected them to, well, our hope is crushed, right? And we can start to resent that person even more than people we don't know or people we'd never loved. Our hope is crushed when we put our trust in a person or a thing and it lets us down. That's why around here, we sing choruses like, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name because where you put your trust is where you get your hope. And so we wanna put our trust in Jesus who won't fail, who will never fail. And so for the Israelites, all their trust was placed in Saul. And so their hope was in him. Their hope came from Saul being able to defeat this giant. This, this human king that they wanted so badly is who they're trusting in, but Saul is missing in action. He's hiding, and day by day, his credibility is slipping away, and the people's hope is dying. Enter David, the boy who would be king. He's still a boy, but he's a boy who's been chosen, anointed as the next king. The Bible tells us, though, that this not yet king after he was anointed as king, uh, that he was, a, he was a man after God's own heart, that the reason we see that God deserted Saul as king and came after David was that Saul's heart was not after God. But David was a man after God's own heart. And no matter what David was running toward or running away from, what we see time and time again in his life, he was running toward God's heart. David was a man after God's own heart. And we're gonna see in this story of David and Goliath three specific things 
that helped make David different from everything else, everyone else, uh, things that made him set apart, things that kind of defined him as a man after God's own heart. And these are in your notes if you want to write these down or follow along. The first thing that we see in David is this, David saw clearly. David saw clearly. The text tells us that David has been going back and forth from tending his father's sheep in Bethlehem to serving Saul. That even though he's been anointed as king and his whole family knows it, uh, David's out tending the sheep. David's with Saul playing music to calm his spirit. David has been chosen as the next king, but what does he do? He doesn't force himself to become king. He doesn't make himself king. Instead, he goes back to doing the things that he's supposed to be doing. He's faithful with little, which scripture tells us someday he'll be faithful with much, right? This is David. He's been anointed as the next king, but he's doing the mundane, everyday things he's been called to do. And one day, his father, Jesse, sends for David and says, hey, I wanna send a care package to your brothers. They're fighting in the battle. I wanna send some cheese and some grain. So we take the cheese and go and see your three brothers that are over there. And so he brings them this care package and he gets to the battle line where his brothers are. Now remember, David hasn't been, he hasn't been witnessing this whole scene. He doesn't know what's been going on between the Israelites and the Philistines and Goliath. He doesn't know this whole story. But verse 23 tells us that as he was talking with them, David was talking with his brothers, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Can you imagine this scene? These mighty warriors are all milling around and out comes Goliath and he shouts at them and they all run and hide. That's the battle, the great battle that's happening between the Israelites and the Philistines. And David sees this. And so somebody tells uh, what's gonna happen to the man who kills Goliath. And David asked, verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for this man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, we read this a couple times. David goes around and starts asking this question of a lot of people. And at first, this sounds like, almost like he's bragging or he's building himself up for something. It's almost like, hey, what will be done for the guy? What will be done for the guy? Do you, do you smell what the rock is cooking, right? <laughs> but that's not what he's doing here. He's going around and see, David sees things differently. He sees this whole situation differently. You can hear it in the way he asks the question. He says, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? And these warriors, these mighty military men are standing there looking at this teenage boy and they've never really thought of it like that. Like kill this Philistine? We've not even thought about killing him. We're just trying not to get killed by him and remove this disgrace from Israel. They hadn't really seen it that way. All they see is this 10 foot tall killing machine, this champion of war and and no successful path forward. And the only guy that even stood a chance against Goliath is our king who's taller than everybody else and he's hiding in the tent. They're, they're looking at this thing from an earthly perspective. But now here's this teenage boy, this zit-faced, Doritos-eating, Mountain Dew-drinking, beats-wearing, peach-fuzz-not-yet-shaven, Fortnite-playing teenage boy talking about removing this disgrace from Israel? Wow, that's different. And David asked, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? All of a sudden, it's personal for David. It's not just about the army. It's about his God. It's about the living God. And no one else had asked that question. Nobody had seen it that way. Uncircumcised Philistine. Well, that means that he's outside the protection of God, outside the covenant of God. 
And David's mad. Who does he think he is? Why in the world hasn't somebody done something about this? At, you know, 15 years old or so, he's calling these men to account because he saw the situation clearly. He saw it for what it was. And so the word gets back to King Saul that somebody's actually going to, thinking about going down to fight this guy. And, and he calls David in. And you can just tell when David walks in that Saul is immediately disappointed at what he sees. You can't fight Goliath. You're only a boy. He's a champion, a mighty champion. He's been, he's been doing this his whole life. Basically, he's saying, he's got underwear older than you. That's not in the scripture. That's just my own translation, okay? But you've never even been in battle. You're just a shepherd. But in verse 40, 34, David says, David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because, because why? Because I'm a brave soldier. Nope, he isn't. Because I've got so much military might and wisdom. That's not it. He doesn't have any of that. Because of my own strength. No. David says, because he has defied the armies of the living God. And the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And this is the second characteristic we see in David that makes him so different is David walked humbly. David walked humbly. Notice that for David, there's absolutely no confusion that he sees this clearly in a way that no one else saw it. He had extraordinary clarity, and it was simply this. An enemy of God's people is an enemy of God. And then he was very humble about where his strength comes from. He said, my strength comes from God, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hands of this Philistine. And so he said, King Saul, let me do what no man in your army has been willing to do. In fact, King Saul, let me do what you have been unwilling to do. Now, the interesting thing about this uh, encounter is this. Later, we know David would become king. And David was a real Renaissance man way before the Renaissance. Like, uh, as a king, he was not only a great warrior and a musician, but he was a poet and a writer, a psalmist. He wrote songs. And so we don't just have this narrative. We don't just get to see what happened we don't just get to see and hear what David said. We actually get a glimpse behind the scenes. We get to see what he was thinking. Through the Psalms, we get inside the mind of David. We get inside his emotions. We understand how he thought. And later on, he would document this incredible perspective and he would write these words in Psalm 25. He wrote this, "'In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. "'I trust in you. "'Do not let me be put to shame, "'nor let my enemies triumph over me.'" See, this was the posture that God hoped for, for all of his people, his chosen people, the nation of Israel. This is the humility he wanted to see in them. This is the trust he wanted to see in them, that they would trust in him for everything, that they would count on him for everything. But, but in their second king, the nation of Israel finally got to see this in a person. They found a man who understood the perspective that God wanted for his people. So back to the story, teenager David, clear-eyed, humble, offers to do the king's dirty work for him. And Saul finally relents, but he decides, hey, if you're going to go into battle for me, you need to at least look like a warrior. 
You need to at least look the part. So verse 38 tells us that Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. Now I wanna stop right there. I didn't say this in the first service, but I think there's something going on behind the scenes here that we don't see. I think there's a little bit of Saul that is trying to reserve credit if David does win, that they might think it's Saul. He gives him his own tunic. That would have been very personal to the king. He gives him his own armor and even tries to put his helmet on his head. If David had gone into battle like this, who would have been able to tell it was David? Nobody. If Saul's still in his tent, here comes this guy out of Saul's tent with Saul's armor, with Saul's tunic, and kills the giant? Who does it look like? But then if David gets killed, they're gonna take the armor off and they're gonna realize, oh, it wasn't King Saul. So King Saul's kind of in a win-win if this happens, right? He's trying to get credit for something he's not willing to do. But he puts his armor on it. And then David says this in verse 40, David fastened his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. And he says, I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff off in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream and put them in the pouch of a shepherd's bag and with his sling in hand, approached the Philistine. Now, now this world, what this passage is telling us is the world has its ways of fighting, right? There are, there are ways of fighting that are unique to the world, but those aren't our ways of fighting. As followers of Jesus, just like the nation of Israel was supposed to be different, it was supposed to be set apart, right? As followers of Jesus, we're supposed to be set apart. We're supposed to be different from the world. And so we don't fight as the world fights. The apostle Paul would later write to us, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. And David tried on Saul's armor and it was uncomfortable, right? It was cumbersome, the text said. It didn't, didn't fit him right. It didn't feel right. And so I think we can find a helpful phrase here for us when we're confronted with the world's ways of fighting. Because at some point in your journey, this may have already happened to you. If not, it may be going to happen to you in the future. At some point in the journey, some point in your life, some friend or family member who probably means well and probably wants the best for you is going to give you a piece of advice that directly contradicts what you know to be true from Scripture. And when, you, when they do, you can just say, I'm sorry, that doesn't fit me right. That doesn't feel right on me. So when your coworker tells you, you know what, this company's been taking advantage of you for years. You deserve to take back just a little and besides, nobody's gonna notice. You can say, you know what, I'm sorry, that just doesn't fit me right. That just doesn't feel right on me. When, when your girlfriend says, uh, you know what, you've put it up with enough of his long hours and late nights long enough, it's time for a divorce. You just need to do what's right for you. You can say, that just doesn't feel right on me. I'm sorry, that just doesn't, doesn't fit right. When they say, one little time won't hurt, nobody's gonna notice. You deserve to get a little revenge. Everybody else is doing it too. That's how the world fights. Do you see that? That's not how we're called to fight. As followers of Jesus, that's gonna be a little uncomfortable on us. So David decides to fight his own way. Actually, he's gonna fight in a way that makes him completely and totally dependent on God. In fact, the way that David goes into battle, if God doesn't show up, David's in big trouble because he leaves his armor, he leaves his helmet, he leaves his sword behind, and he picks up five little rocks in his sling and he puts them in his shepherd bag. That is, um, by the way, that's, um, that's Hebrew for fanny pack. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> David goes into battle with a fanny pack and here's Goliath with his armor bearer. Notice if you read the text, you see his armor bearer or shield bearer is still in front of him. 
his 125 pounds of armor with his helmet, with his bronze greaves, with a javelin, a spear, and a sword. If God doesn't show up for David, you see what I'm saying? If God doesn't show up, there's going to be trouble. And he makes his way down to the Valley of Elah and Goliath repeats his threats and David waits. And then he looks at Goliath and he says this in verse 45. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin and dagger and gun. And dang. I mean, it's like, you come against me with all these weapons. He says, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Babe Ruth pointing at the bleachers. <laughs> I will strike you down. I will cut off your head this very day. I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that David is king. No, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is whose? The battle is whose? The Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. And here we see the third characteristic of David, and it's that David acted confidently. David acted confidently. Now you think, well, how can you walk humbly but act confidently? But remember, this is not foolish confidence. David isn't being reckless here. He saw with clarity what no one else saw. And he humbly recognized that all of his strength, all of his help come from God. All of his hope was in the Lord. And David's assumption was this. The person whose hope is in the Lord need not fear, even when there's something to be afraid of. Even when there's something to be afraid of. And this assumption would stick with David throughout his entire life. But somehow, even as a young man, he had embraced this truth that the person whose hope is in the Lord need not fear even when there's something to be afraid of. And so David acted confidently. And in verse 48, we see what happens. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward, ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag, unzipping it, taking out a stone, <laughs> He slung and struck the Philistine on the forehead and the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. And as the Philistine army watched, they can't believe what just happened. Their giant, their warrior has been felled. He's on the ground. You can almost hear them going, get up. Goliath, get up, he's coming. And just so there's no confusion over what happened, David jumps on top of this Philistine, takes his own sword out of his sheath because David didn't bring his own and cuts off his head, just like he said he would. And David instantly became the most popular man in all of Israel, and at the same time, the most feared man among the Philistines. He had killed their great warrior, their champion, their giant. And David did what King Saul had failed to do because David saw something that Saul could not see, and he walked humbly, and he acted confidently. And so it is with those whose hope is in the Lord. They see clearly, they walk humbly, they act confidently. And so here's the key. If you wanna be a man or a woman or a student after God's own heart, put all your trust in him. David said, all of my trust is in you. Receive all your hope from his promises and from what he can do for your life. Declare with David every morning, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. 
in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Imagine waking up tomorrow morning and making that declaration before you even get out of bed. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Imagine driving to work and there's a meeting you're not looking forward to or a conversation you've got to have that's not going to be fun and you just think to yourself, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Imagine in the midst of your greatest success when all the eyes are on you and you're the smartest person in the room in this moment, just whispering under your breath, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. And in those moments where it looks like the whole world has turned against you and that Goliath will in fact take you down instead of the opposite thing happening. Just whisper under your breath, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. He loves you. He is for you. He sent his only son, Jesus, so that you could be rescued. And in Psalm 89, God promised David, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm throughout all generations. And how was this promise fulfilled? It was through his son, Jesus. For followers of Jesus, our hope has nothing to do with this world. This, This world is decaying. I don't know if you've noticed. This world is dying. There is nothing of lasting hope here in this world. We place our trust in Christ. We set our hope fully on the grace that will be given when he's revealed. And that same hope can be yours today. You can live every day, regardless of circumstances, regardless of fears, regardless of trials, full of hope because of what Christ has done in living a sinless life, dying a sacrificial death, and defeating death by being raised from the dead, giving us hope. Would you pray with me? Lord God, my trust is in you. In you is my hope all day long. All of my hope is in you. Lord, I want that to be said of our church and of all of us here, that all of our trust is in you, that all of our hope is in you all day long. Help us to walk that way. Lord, we thank you for these stories of great men and women in scripture who exemplify the kind of life you want us to live here on earth. And I thank you for the promise that our life doesn't end here on earth, that you have made a promise through the line of David, through your son, Jesus, that we can have eternal life from you if we just turn from our sin and follow him. And so Lord, we, we wanted to sing about that now. We, we thank you that you are a God who is not content to stay on your throne in heaven and watch as we perished but that you came down and rescued us, that you became God with us, that you came to earth to rescue us from our sin. We thank you for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.